Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports Professor Rick Harrow inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. And you are on the record. Big weeks heading into March Madness, NFL Draft, NFL Combine, NHL, NBA Playoffs. It's all there. Oh, and by the way, the beginning of the baseball season, if that's not enough, NASCAR takes its next steps. And the Masters, all for us as cable and streaming and all get into the next level. We have a lot to talk about. Deal-making issues, three to one. Three. UFC 285 PPV buys are expected to soar to 500,000. John Jones' return headlining. The bottom line is T-Mobile Arena in Vegas featuring Jones making his heavily anticipated return to the octagon. Jones back on the roster, expecting to see even more PPV draws thanks to his skill and impressive style of fighting. And the former heavyweight, light heavyweight champ, stamped his part in history, became a two-division champ. The bottom line is, this becomes a league of superstar showmen. And, of course, John Jones, every part of that. Two. Comcast NBC Universal Sports Tech Accelerator admits 10 new startups. Extended 12 weeks to 6 months to expand opportunities. And Intake works with NBC, Sky Sports, and PGA Tour, among others. More than 90 startups apply to be in the class of 2023. 10 new startups admitted into the Comcast NBC Universal Sports Tech Accelerator. The class includes startups from five countries, covers various segments of sports technology, artificial intelligence, media, in-stadium, fan engagement, and the like. Other obvious advances in entrepreneurialism, as well as the likes of NASCAR, WWE, PGA Tour, U.S. Ski and Snowboard, USA Swimming, USA Cycling. Even more value to the startups because of the vertical integration and coordination that NBC provides. One. Talk about streaming, you got it. Disney's ESPN wants to be the hub of all live sports streaming, even if it's competitive in the market, and even if it means that increases the whole industry. The network held conversations with major sports leagues and media partners about launching a feature on ESPN.com and a free app that would link users directly to where live sporting events are streaming, according to people familiar with the matter. It includes national or global streaming services, Apple TV+, Amazon Prime Video, regional sports services such as Sinclair's Bally Sports Plus or Madison Square Garden's Entertainment MSG Plus. Still, ESPN broached the idea to the major sports leagues and media companies to gauge their enthusiasm. And while the business terms could not be released, people said streaming services sign up through the ESPN app or worldwide if a customer already subscribes to a given service ESPN could collect no money and just provide a link as a courtesy. Warner Brothers Discovery alerted leagues that plans to exit the RSN business altogether, and obviously streaming has some financial issues that have to be resolved before anybody can make a major commitment in the industry. 
And it all depends on sponsorships, and it all depends on how to generate some significant income going forward. And who better to talk about it than the dean, the father, the grandfather, he's not going to like it, of sports sponsorships, respected voice in sport media and marketing, Tony Pontoro, spent 26 years at Anheuser-Busch, the last 17 as CEO of Bush Media Group, leading the in-house agency for all media sport and entertainment activity for all beer and theme park brands. Yes, he invented and created and approached and facilitated the Budweiser Frogs. Do you remember that? He also was the key to all of those Super Bowl commercials, annually ranked in the top 20 most powerful people in sport, and ranked 14th among Business Week's list of the most prominent executives. Pontoro, a member of the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame, he served in various leadership positions, and, as we said in the interview, maybe one of the more important things, and just kidding, a major contributor to my sport business handbook, insights from 100-plus leaders who shaped 50 years of the industry, Tony, a good friend, and if you ever wanted to talk to anybody about what, where sponsorship has been and is going, it's Tony Ponturo. You know, I tell the story about how I'm at Harvard, I'm trying to explain what sports is, and I got a guy who says there's no such thing as sports law. Well, the headwinds for you to convince AB that, quote unquote, sports marketing is really going to move the needle. Did you kind of uh, 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 run into a few cynics and, and how did you change their minds? Well, you know, you always have cynics on the financial accounting side, you know, right. the procurement side as it became known as the, 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 the ladies and gentlemen buying corn and rice and hops and aluminum. And they thought, <laughs> well, isn't it just like that? You could just leverage that and, you know, and buy per pound. And it's like, no, that's not the case. Uh, but thankfully, August Bush III, our CEO, understood it was a certain uh, nuance and, 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 and a certain industry that, that, you know, you needed flexibility. Sometimes you had to have a little give and take, even though, Many people thought we were the 800-pound gorilla, um, and it wasn't. You didn't need too much research, although you know, with all the analytics and everything today, to realize, hmm, a beer consumer may actually be a sports fan. You know, it. it we didn't need too many <laughs> underlying yeah. documents to support that that premise. Well, and then to take the next step, you tell the story in the book about the commitment, uh, the whole Bud Light uh, package, or the Uberoth conversation that parlayed that into a uh, $10 million uh, sponsorship for the 84 Olympics for AB. Tell us a little bit about how that came about and how you got it done. This is the 84 Olympics. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it really, you know, we, our goal, our, our sort of march from the top was, you know, go own sports, be dominant, uh, reach the consumer. Ultimately, you know, the job, it sometimes gets lost in that if you don't move sales and market share, no matter how much sports you do, it, it's not going to be effective. And so someone else will, will be in your job and figure it out. But it, it was a point where California was a big market. Uh, Los Angeles certainly was big within the context of that. Uh, and, you know, here was this major event. I mean, a lot of people forget that the 19... 80 Olympics were in Moscow or in Russia. Right. We didn't go. And we, and we didn't yeah. go. Right. And so Peter Uberoff was like, okay, I need partners. This is a private enterprise. I need advertisers to step up and support this enterprise. Uh, 
And uh, beer is obviously what one of the categories any entity in sports goes after. Uh, and it almost seems like they gave it away, but it was, a t- you know, the, the deal was $10 million to be the official beer of the, of the, of the Olympics, the LA 84 games. And then it gave us really one of the first really national props, uh, trademarks, I guess is a, is a more intelligent word to promote Budweiser, uh, and Bud Light, which was just starting out, uh, across the country as an official sponsor. Uh, so, uh, the, the the benefit, and for a lot of people out there, is if your if your senior senior management understands uh, that you have to yeah. number one invest, number two empower your people to find the right things to do, it can be a lot easier process because they've sort of bought in already. Get us get us the premium products, quality products. Go out and promote it. Take it to retail. Relate the consumer to it, and then you see your beer you know, product or any product fly off the shelf. The drudgery-oriented day in the life of Tony Pontoro. The guy gets to drink unlimited quality quantities of beer. He has a blank, well, not a blank check, because you got to justify a return, to spend money and, in your words, though, dominate the sports field and gobble up everything you possibly could. So I ain't feeling sorry for you, even though, uh, not even though, you uh, uh, broadcasting uh, and uh, Cable Hall of Fame in 2010. The accolades are off the charts. We don't have enough time in it. But what you did is you parlayed a pioneering career into unquestionably the best in the business. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it was, it was as I said, empowered to do the job right, uh, great partners. And I think, you know, now 14, removed, 14 years removed from Anheuser-Busch, I still run into whether it's a commissioner, whether it's a broadcaster, yeah. whether it's someone at the sales department or a team owner. Uh, you know, there was a time in the late 80s, early 90s, we sponsored 90 percent of every professional team locally in this country. Um, and, you know, it's a little corny, but, you know, our motto coming from Adolphus Bush, the founder was making friends is our business. Uh, we wanted if, if all ties on money, we wanted to go to A.B. versus when I say A.B. and Heiser-Busch versus Miller or Coors or Heineken or anyone else. Um, and that sort of rang true. And I still hear it today, which is. You know, you did a lot for us, but you did it the right way as a company, not just me. And, and and that probably means as much to me as anything. It's like we just we just really use the word partnership, you know, you know, in, in real terms and in real action. And that still resonates today. Let's segue into that for a minute, because you set it up. Corporate philanthropy is one of those things that has been uh, sometimes a throwaway by people that don't know how to use it. And after post uh, after COVID, post COVID, uh, I think is probably more important than ever. What's your overall perspective of the role of a of corporate America uh, in giving back, uh, and especially on the sports side? I think it still could do a lot better job. Um, you know, it, it's the, the, sports league, sports teams get so much from their communities. Um, and you know, you want to make sure you don't do things that are sort of superficial that says, well, we're doing some of these things. I mean, I think they can do more. Um, I always felt that, um, you know, before the lawsuits, when the Rams left St. Louis, uh, there were so many things that, you know, when, when 
Kroenke gave the league, what was it, $500 million to have the right to transfer to Los Angeles. You know, what if you took 10% of that money, you know, and put it back into the community? Because it really wasn't St. Louis community fault that they left. It wasn't because of lack of support. It was because of what we see now at SoFi and, and, that, and that huge market. But it would have been nice to leave something behind for schools, for playgrounds, for, for ballparks. And we just don't see enough of that. You know, everyone, you know, I guess it's the, the world of capitalism keeps adding to the greed of the pile rather than put more back into the communities, which would serve us all a little better. Well, and it's an amazing perspective of yours, a unique one, because of your time in St. Louis and your time working with the NFL. And of course, as we know, when you lose a team, it's really difficult to get it back. Ask St. Louis. Uh, and yet uh, teams in, in many perspectives, we both worked around the NFL, uh, uh, corporate, uh, corporate ownership, ownership of teams. Uh, most owners, right minded owners, view their temporary ownership as it's a public trust. And therefore, they need to bend over backwards to even give more to the community. Do you agree? Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of like, you know, doing good work will, will create good business. And uh, and particularly now, I mean, with, with these obviously independent owners, essentially, you know, who have done well in other businesses, um, you, you want to keep, you know, solidifying the roots in that community. Uh, you know, sort of taking a twist like that. I used to say, even with Anheuser-Busch, you know, back in St. Louis, back in the day, you would have 70 market share, but it wasn't just, you weren't getting 70 market share because, um, you know, you happened to be headquartered there. You were getting 70 market share because you were supporting the museum, the arts, you know, other community factors, which touched everybody that said, if you're loyal to me, I'll be loyal to you. It's sort of, you know, basic marketing in a way. So the more the owners across all leagues can do things that say, we'll support the community that we're in uh, and not just take tax tax breaks and stuff like that. But if we support you, even without asking, it's obvious that that community will support them. And, uh, you know, and and we've seen, you know, where, 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 where teams do move ultimately, if, if the community doesn't support them in the way that maybe another community would. Very clearly. So let's talk about, in that context, three uh, fairly disruptive things uh, that affect all sports, uh, just tangential to beer or sponsorship, but you've got the perspective to deal with all of them. Uh, COVID, uh, gambling, uh, and new media. First on COVID, the stuff that, that I've been, been writing, we've all read each other's stuff, that post-COVID, uh, the, the uh, people that get ahead are the ones that are are resilient and uh, 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 survive on the other end of natural selection uh, and are very creative, uh, but it, man, it, it, it killed a lot of businesses. Uh, what's the one biggest thing you've taken away from post-COVID uh, re- recovery that's going to help in, in, in later business life? You know, I, I think it's about not taking things for granted. I think COVID yeah. really said to all, you know, you never know what what's going to change, whether it's the most dramatic your life or your business, uh, where, where the floor sort of pulled out from under you. So it should really make you even stay on your toes more and realize, you know, every day, I remember we used to say at Anheuser-Busch, 
Every year would start with one bottle at a time. No one assured you wherever you were in that market share. And I think that's what COVID probably has done to say, no one's guaranteeing you tomorrow other than being smart, hard work, being innovative, um, and, you know, staying ahead of the curve. So I think that that's certainly one thing that, that, that I've recognized with, with COVID and the, the remnants of it afterwards. Critical advice. Uh, the whole idea of gambling, you know, when I was working in the NFL, uh, it was go find public money to build a stadium, but you can't touch uh, gaming money. You can't touch sponsorships uh, anywhere related to gambling. Now, if you don't do it, you're leaving significant money on the table. Uh, how are we doing generally since the Supreme Court ruling and the 32 states that have it? It seems so far to me that it's being, you know, uh, well managed, I guess would be a way to say it. It's it's critical, as you know, that the minute anything on the field is questioned, uh, then the, the you know the cards will crumble. Um, you know the quality of, of the competition can never be diminished, um, and so that aspect of gambling uh, is so so important to keep to keep the bets out of the playing field, if you will. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of money there. It obviously creates excitement and interest in broadcasts. Um, and at least, you know, from, from you know, somewhat of a distance, but from, from my observation, uh, it seems to be uh, making sense. I'll tell you something that's sort of interesting, and I can't find it in any box. I think my mother threw it out. I, I was an economics major at Villanova, go back to 1974, and my, my final exam term paper, in 1974, was states should legalize gambling to create, to legalize sports gambling to create revenue for the states. Um, you know, so. You sure you don't, you, look at, look at, look in those boxes again, because <laughs> it, that's great that it's 74, man. That That's a really big, that's the first time I've ever heard that from you. Go back and look in the boxes, see if you can find I it. I know, I know. It's got to be somewhere. It's It's got to be somewhere. Although yeah. she threw away my Mickey Mantle baseball card, so that, that may have gone in the same trash can steiner can replace that for you at a, at, at a, at a discount no wait the other way around at a 10 percent markup i forgot we're talking about right, steiner yeah, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm sorry that's right all right so the other piece of this is is media you know you look at some of the numbers that i've seen 37 percent reduction in conventional conventional tv watching over the last couple of years but 100 percent increase in the little video snackable those kinds of things and 72 percent of the uh 12 to 19 year olds consider themselves avid sports fans. So there's hope for us yet. Uh, where is new media going? Uh, you know, give us some perspective on that whole world. Yeah. Just as one step back, I remember being on a panel years ago with uh, Bodenheimer at ESPN and I think yeah. Gary Bettman and saying to ESPN, you're teaching the world how to watch sports in a soundbite, you know, IE yeah. sports center. And I think that's, clearly where we are it's difficult to watch three hours of a sporting event and and i'm a diehard and you know you find yourself particularly you know if you're watching multiple things on a on a given day like like three broadcasts of, of the nfl um as i talk to young people you know they're watching recaps things on youtube uh and obviously streaming continues to be you know more and more a place to uh to capture you know audience who are who are focused on wanting to watch that and will pay to do that. So it's clearly evolving. Um, and I think uh, we're slowly seeing, you know, from what I watch, 
where I started with three television networks to then, you know, the, the invention, if you will, of satellite TV to the internet, and now the elements spinning off of that. So you have to follow the consumer. The younger consumer uh, is not going to spend the time that I'll say we did uh, when there wasn't that many choices. And so adapting to all that, particularly from those that are the supporters from an advertising standpoint is huge. So I don't think it's ever going to rubber band back. It's going to just keep progressing to uh, to the packaging that you, you sort of mentioned, sm smaller and smaller sound bites. As the guy who wrote the check for a lot of this stuff, uh, is there a business future to monetize streaming? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I never felt you could underestimate or take for granted the consumer trends because they're going to take you where you need to go. Um, I can remember heads of network sales departments saying, well, we got you got 50 percent of, of the national traditional, you know, broadcast television network sales money. And I said, well, what about the cable money? And they go, well, we don't really see that as competition. Well, of course, you know, you know, years later, 60 percent of all national television dollars went to the what I'll call the satellite cable side. So, right. yeah, so it's going to move and how that's monetized, you know, and 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 it's interesting because you have to the consumer. So I was streaming something, you know, on, on, on Peacock and realizing that that I did not pay the, the money to get no commercials. I paid the money to still get commercials. And someone who made a living on, you know, advertising dollars, I found it intrusive, you know, but but if they had found a better way to just either set up the commercials or do it up front, do it something in the middle, something at the end, almost like, a, you know, the soccer match, I would have been much more consumer friendly than being interrupted every 10 minutes with a two minute commercial block. Let, let, let the record heretofore reflect that an ungr ungrateful t Tony Pontoro <laughs> is now lamenting the fact that the guy's got to watch commercials. <laughs> How ironic. How unfortunate well, I, and ironic. I always figure if, 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 if I'm losing patience at the, you yeah, know, yeah. At, at the last college stage I am, what, yeah. what's the 25-year-old doing? I got it. Tell me about Revenge of the Sea Student. Yeah, I'll do my little shameless plug, too. So yeah. I can see my black lab on the beach in Hiltman. Um it was it, it was a, something in the works for about five years, to be honest, and I put it aside to put it aside because I didn't want to embarrass myself. And then some that had read it a little bit uh, sort of encouraged me to sort of, you know, update it, clean it up. And and as and, and I self-published on Amazon. And as I started working with students, uh, both as a, as a professor at NYU teaching leadership and crisis management and later now at Columbia the last three years advising students outside the classroom, it, it, it became clear to me that what I believe in very strongly is the human attributes of business are very important. Uh, that when all ties go to, I've got an Ivy League degree, I've got great, I got a master's and I got great grades. Okay, what's the tiebreaker? And that becomes, you know, what is your brand? What is Rick Haro's brand? What does he right. stand for? Do I want to spend time with it? Is it relevant, authentic? You know, all the buzzwords coming out of branding, but it's the same for people. And I felt that that needed to be taught. You know, it's sort of the Peter Drucker principle of, you know, he was more interested in not the nuts and bolts, but the human side of business. And that 
that was what I felt made me, if I was different than some people in the business, it was not my intellectual smarts. It was my human intellect, if you will, and, and trying to use those attributes in business. Um, and so I wanted to share that with everybody, but particularly young people. I mean, you know, I have nieces and nephews that still are reluctant to go into the office and, and try to still work at home. And I, you know, sometimes young people, you know, I don't say this as criticism, but just constructive critique, sort of think you know it all. We all probably thought we knew it all at 30 years old, right? Oh, oh but yeah. We, but we didn't really know it all. And so, so, so hopefully, so simply put, I try to use myself as sort of the narrative from midget football to high school, you know, high school to through Anheuser-Busch years as the 10 sort of things I think important in business and tell the story. And as I used to tell my students when I taught, in, in the 15 weeks of this semester, if you take away three important things that stick with you, I've done my job, you know, and chances are I'm going to, you know, in that case, take away three or four important things from you. And I feel the same way about the book, you know, you may not, you know, it's easy to read, you know, it, you may not agree with everything. But if someone says, you know, you made me think, you know, <laughs> I had a dentist who's 75 years old, who I play golf with at Hilton Head, who said, you had me thinking about maybe I had the wrong career. He was a very successful dentist, but maybe I would have been a really good business person because of the things you talked about. So it made him think, nice. you know, nice. you know, so, yeah. uh, uh, so anyway, yeah, it's, yeah. you know, one last sort of thing to, to put on, you know, on the resume builder. I'm still, I'm still building. Well, you're still building it. No, no. Hey, listen, <laughs> it's a great thing and we're all building until we can't move anymore. You know, final final serious piece. The guy took Lombardi, Magic Bird, and Bronx Bombers to Broadway, Tony Award winning Tony Ponturo. Do you miss doing more of that? I do. Um, I love the creative process. I love being with the creative people. Tommy Kale, who directed both Lombardi and Magic Bird, has gone on to direct Hamilton. So he doesn't need me anyone else. He's still a good friend. Uh, uh, <laughs> he's actually, anymore. he's bringing back the revival of Sweeney Todd now. So, but yeah, so, and, and, and so that creative process and, you know, it was so entrepreneurial because you go, well, let's do a play about Vince Lombardi. And now you put one foot in front of the other and, you know, pull it all together and, and on and on. Um, will there be another one? I, you know, let, let me get too personal, but I have a niece who's very much wants to be a writer and, and director and is with a writing team at Paramount working on a project right now in the cold in Newark, New Jersey. But um, I've always said to her, you know, you have an idea, doesn't have to be sports. It could be just good storytelling. You know, so you know who you know someone who knows how to produce on Broadway. So we'll see what happens. I mean, you don't want to get too personal. What the hell do you you know? You got to get personal. This is a personal, <laughs> it's a personal interview. I hope she succeeds, and I hope you put her on Broadway. Final question for you: Rumor has it you invented those frog commercials with the long tongues. Did you do those commercials? No, I got to give Bob Lackey. He's a good friend. We worked hand in hand. He was. He those was, are the best. He and you can imagine what he had to do in order to convince a board sometime that, <laughs> that the Budweiser brand wasn't being defaced by crazy frogs. And uh, yeah, but uh, the, the credit goes to 
and, and the agencies of the, the people he worked with. But uh, those were pioneering times, and uh, they speak for themselves. Well, as usual, Tony gives us a perspective that is way above anybody else's. He's been in the industry more than anybody, and I think you could argue that Tony is probably the cardinal introductory member of the Sports Sponsorship Hall of Fame to the extent there ever is was one, and he's the guy you go to for any short-term, long-term, and any kind of advice. Tony Pontoro, certainly a legend. How about the Sports Tech Minute? A-Rod's ticketing startup, Jump, raised about $20 million in funding. It eclipsed the $30 million in overall funding. The ticket specialist, founded by New York Yankees legend A-Rod and his business partner Mark Laurie, raised about $20 million in funding and then more. Courtside Ventures, Will Ventures, Mastery Ventures, Metalab. There are a lot of partners in this, and Jump uses the latest funding to expand its workforce including hiring more engineers to further develop its products. company will aim to exploit the U.S. market in music and sports, and the decision from Ticketmaster to cancel Taylor Swift ticket sales to the general public has prompted a big legal battle, and since Ticketmaster merged with Live Nation to form Live Nation Entertainment in 2010, the company dominated the space, well, that is until recently. That's your Sports Tech Minute. How about gambling? It's always the top issue, and this is no different when you take a look at what Major League Baseball is doing with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner in North America. The groups, FanDuel Group and MLB, announced a multi-year partnership, making the industry-leading sportsbook a co-exclusive official sports betting partner of MLB. Starting this season... FanDuel bring fans' viewing and wagering experience closer than ever before by streaming MLB TV's free game of the day through both FanDuel Sportsbook app and FanDuel's OTT platform, FanDuel Plus. The company will also have the right to use highlights both in product and as part of the overall original programming on FanDuel TV. Partnership creates new opportunities for MLB and FanDuel to collaborate on projects for other sponsor partners of FanDuel and MLB platforms, as well as to work together to bring consumers new sports betting product innovations to drive deeper fan engagement. MLB has an expanded platform and partnership with the National Council on Problem Gambling, serving as a platinum member and part of the group's leadership circle. Every new gambling partnership has to emphasize this, and surely this one does as well. That's your Sports Gambling Minute. Finally, the good sports issues for the week. Athleta partners with 11 elite athletes to continue its mission of empowering women and girls. Allison Felix, Simone Biles, and the Power of She Collective collaborate to further well-being for women and girls. The organizations have been working together for several years through Athleta's Power of She Fund. The 49ers announced a new multi-broadcast partnership for many years with Sacktown Sports, 1140 AM, obviously generating some money there. Streaming services, about $8.5 billion for sports rights in 2023. Barcelona invests in sports tech startups as part of the global innovation hub expansion 
and the Royals host kids' takeover games where the kids get a taste of the sports business. Get this. Children aged 7 to 14 get to shadow some of the people working together for different jobs uh, with the Royals. This is the first of its kind, but it certainly will not be the last. What an incredible opportunity for the kids. And this is something that's going to be followed, I'm sure, all over baseball and all over sports. And we'd like to thank Tony Pontoro, the Dean of Sports Sponsorships, for giving us some perspective. would like to thank Nick Nielsen for helping us put the show together. would like to thank you all for listening and watching. And join us next week when we continue to go inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. On the record, I'm sports professor Rick Harrow. Speak with you soon.